Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Good morning, church family. I enjoy hearing the laughter and fun over there. All right, we are in week number four of our winter teaching series, Belong, Believe, Become. And as Alex mentioned, this is our third week talking about that theme of belonging, our third and final week. We're in John chapter five. And I'm going to admit to you, we're going to spend most of the time just talking about the first three verses. Is that okay? Because sometimes you start digging into a passage and God just says so much right off the bat. And I think it's things that we need to hear right now, February 5th, 2023. John chapter 5 and verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So let's get some context. After what? From Judea to Galilee, Jesus is traveling. Last week, Doug was talking about John chapter 4, where Jesus, on that journey, does this roundabout trip to Samaria, and he meets the woman at the well. And this woman was looking for love in all the wrong places. She had gone to well after well after well, and still, it didn't quench her thirst. It didn't satisfy her hunger for belonging, for relationship, for connection, until she met Jesus. And Jesus gave her the living water. And I love how Doug pointed out, in this world, we are never going to find satisfaction for our thirsty souls. It's like an alcoholic. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. You're never going to find the satisfaction that your soul longs for in this world, under the sun, as King Solomon says. Doug pointed out that That's why Jesus is bringing in a new kingdom with a new value system, and it's only acceptable by being born again, which is what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was trying to earn his way into belonging. He was trying to achieve it through perfectionism, through religion, through following the rules and being an example and being educated and holding a prestigious position. But Jesus points out it's only accessible through himself through his death on the cross, because God loved the world so much that he gave Jesus so that whoever would believe would not perish but have eternal life. So Nicodemus tried to earn belonging. The woman at the well tried to find belonging. Today we're going to talk about a poor guy who was down on his luck, pretty hopeless. He knew that he could never earn belonging or connection, or community, because of his helpless state. He was never able to find belonging, or connection, or community. He didn't really have the opportunity, it seemed. So he had kind of given up. I tried to earn it, didn't work. Tried to find it, couldn't find it. Nothing satisfied. So I just gave up and was comfortable and content with a cheap substitute. Kind of a crutch, if you will. I know this group that I hang out with, it's not really helpful or beneficial for me, and it's not going to be good in the long run, but 
I've kind of been stuck here for a long time and I'm starting to get more comfortable. It's starting to grow on me. I'm, I'm kind of scared to leave because there's a sense of comfort in this group in which I'm stuck. We're going to talk about a man who was stuck where he probably shouldn't have been. There's the achiever, the seeker, and then the one who'd lost hope. Which one are you? You trying to achieve belonging? Are you looking for belonging in the world? Or have you just given up and you're settling for a cheap substitute? So Jesus is in Jerusalem for a feast. Which feast? This is the Feast of Purim, or Feast of Lots. And it's about the story in the book of Esther, where Esther stands up as an advocate for the Jewish people and delivers them from a sure and certain end. And so this feast was started on the 13th day of Adar, which they believe was the day when Esther fasted before she went into the king and prayed that the king would hold out his scepter and receive what she had to say. So the Jewish people would fast on the 13th day of Adar. Then the next day, the 14th day, or potentially the 15th, they exchange gifts, and it's a big party with all kinds of feasting because God showed up in the book of Esther She stood up encouraged to be an advocate for the people and God rescued and delivered the people. So now the Jews celebrate that with feasting after a day of fasting. So this is why Jesus is going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Purim. Now, that's a good reason to get together, isn't it? To remember what God has done for us, to remember how he's delivered us, to remember how through one man's courage, the God-man, he was an advocate for the people and brought deliverance for the people, and we get to come together to celebrate that. That's, that's a good reason to get together, isn't it? Yeah, Jesus fulfills that picture. The Jewish feasts. Um, I want you to pay attention to the significance of the number seven throughout the Gospel of John. It's interesting how many times it's mentioned. There's seven sign miracles, turning the water to wine at the wedding of Canaan and Galilee. That was the first one. They point to the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. There's seven I am statements that we're going to see through the Gospel of John that point to the deity of Jesus. And then there are seven feasts that point to Jesus being the Messiah, God's ultimate fulfillment of the promises that he's given to his people. All of these seven seven things that point to Jesus. All right. Now, there's a reason to come together. This is why Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem. Let's look at verse number two. John 5 and verse two. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, and in Aramaic it's called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. I want you to get this picture. Now, Did we get that picture of the site, the Pool of Bethesda? Can we see that? So this is what they believe is the Pool of Bethesda today. They've done an archaeological dig, and that's what it looks like. But back in the day, it would have had these five roofed areas where people could lay out of the heat of the sun around this pool. And the verse says, In these lay a multitude of invalids. It's right through the sheep gate as Jesus entered the city before he came to the temple 
for the Jewish feast. It's the Sabbath day. Everybody's traveling that direction. From the Sheep Gate, you would have to go right past these pools of Bethesda. And that's where Jesus stops in. And this is where this conversation is going to unfold with this character. It's just inside the city, but not quite at the feast, at the party, not not quite to the temple. Part of the Jewish people inside the city, but outside the temple walls. Kind of part of the people, but separated from the people. Do you know what I'm saying? Bethesda means house of mercy, house of kindness. You could probably say house of benevolence. It was a place where people in need of help gathered. It's a pretty good name for the church, isn't it? We're all people in need of help. That's why we're gathering here today. After verse 3, what's the next verse in your Bible? 5. Does anybody have a verse 4 in their Bible, or does everybody's Bible skip verse 4? Anybody? Verse 4? Yeah? Glenda's got a verse 4. That's kind of weird, isn't it? Now, why would your Bible skip verse 4? We should probably talk about that in case you're at university someday and your professor points out you can't trust the Bible because it's missing verses. Or maybe your, your coworker points out, do you really trust that thing? You, you should probably have an answer for that, shouldn't you? So let, let me give you one possible explanation. The Bibles that we're holding in our hands today, you need to know, are copies of the original Bible. The original Bible was not written in English. It was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. So the English version of the Bible, the English translation of the Bible that you're holding today, maybe you have it on your phone, maybe it's at home on your shelf and you should have brought it today, it's just a copy of those original manuscripts. It's the English version of the original. So the Bible that you're holding today is a copy. You need to understand that. The Bible is inspired in its original languages. And if you want to know the true meaning and understanding of the scriptures, you need to go back to those original languages. That's why in some of our sermons, we take a moment to say, here's what that term means in Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic. Like Bethesda, what does Bethesda mean? We should probably translate that so that we can understand. So the Bible that you're holding is a copy that's based off of thousands of historical documents that we refer to as manuscripts. Now, why is verse 4 not there? Uh, Verse 4, Glenda, maybe in your Bible, this is potentially what it says. Uh, In the pool of Bethesda, there's a multitude of invalids. They were waiting for the moving of the water. And verse 4 says this, For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease they had. Now, why is that in some Bibles and not in other Bibles? And it's kind of a weird story, isn't it? An angel comes down once a year at a certain season, stirs the water, first person in is healed. That's why this multitude of invalids, people who were blind, lame, and paralyzed are all waiting around the water because if it stirs, I want to be the first one in so that I can get healed. You wouldn't understand this passage if that little bit of context wasn't in there, would you? Why are all these people gathered here? He's about to talk about how he doesn't have anybody to get him into the water first. Well, why do you need to get into the water first? This is the context, the cultural context, 
that we need to understand this passage. So, in some of the earliest manuscripts, this is not there. In some other manuscripts, it's almost as if it's written as a contextual blurb to help readers who wouldn't understand this cultural context to understand. It's like it's written in the margin, in parentheses. Hey, just so you know, this is the local legend of what people thought of the Pool of Bethesda because it's pretty important to be able to understand the passage. So that's written in some of the manuscripts, but not others. And eventually, over time, some versions of Scripture, some translations of Scripture included it, and others did not include it. But it's helpful contextual information to understand the passage. Now, what is it not? It's not anything that goes against the deity of Christ. It's not anything that causes us to question the gospel of our salvation. It's contextual understanding for the story at hand. And that's why it's only included in some manuscripts and not in others. It was added to help us understand what the context of this passage is. Does that make any sense? That's potentially an explanation that you can give if somebody points out the Bible is missing a verse and therefore you can't trust it. So this was written in here to help us understand that local legend of the pool of Bethesda. Yeah, it's like the, uh, it says, waiting for the moving of the water. That's why the invalids were gathered there, waiting for the moving of the water, and then the rest of verse 4 is the further explanation. It's kind of like um, some people have study Bibles. We've been giving out Bibles to new folks who, who come into our church, and some of those Bibles are study Bibles. So the top part of the Bible is the scripture, all the verses and chapters, and then the lower half is the explanation of said scriptures, which can be very helpful, but should be separated from the scriptures themselves. It's an explanation of the context, the original language, the meaning behind the verses. Make sense? All right. So in case I haven't totally lost you, let's get back to the picture here. So all of these people with disabilities and issues, keeping them from living a normal life, they're all gathered at this pool. Because maybe at some point, at a certain season, there's going to be an angel come down and steer the water, so we've heard, and the first one in will be healed of whatever their disability may be. First one in the water. Now think about it. They're all sitting there. Day after day, the character we've, we're about to meet has been there for decades. You'd probably build some relationships with people, wouldn't you? You'd probably talk with people, probably share stories with people, maybe share a meal with people, maybe share, share a part of your mat with people. You'd get to know people. You'd you know, swap jokes. You'd have inside stories. Maybe you'd play games. This, this would kind of be like a community in and of itself, wouldn't it? There'd be a sense of belonging. Like, these are my people. Joe over there, he's been here for 13 years. And Susan, she just arrived a year ago, and she's fairly new. And you'd get to know these people and have a sense of community. But at the end of the day... If that water's going to stir, it's dog-eat-dog. It's every man for himself. And if Susan gets in after just being here for a year and I don't, I'm not going to share my bread with her tomorrow. Wouldn't that be a weird sense of community? Like, we're all in this together, but hey, guess what? We're not. When it really comes down to it, you're my enemy. If you're between me and the water, you better look out. 
but every other day let's play checkers. How would that community work? I would question, is that real community? Are those real relationships? Or are people just in it for the, the miracle water? Are they real friends? Is the community that you spend time with, do they have your back on that day? Are they real relationships? What an odd sense of belonging. These people are my closest friends. But once a year, the reason why we're all here, they're my mortal enemies. Have you noticed how misery loves company? Initially, that phrase was well-meaning. Like, if, if you're in a tough place, then you should have a community of supportive and encouraging, loving people, correcting people around you who can help you. You shouldn't be alone when you're suffering. You should be together in community. But misery loves company has taken on this new understanding where we just love to get together and vent and complain. Oh, yeah, that's rough for you. Well, let me tell you about my weekend. Why, why does that draw us in? Why does that seem so enticing? Maybe you don't believe me. Well, why don't you just go visit your local Tim Hortons or McDonald's on a weekday morning and listen to the group of older gentlemen sitting over in the corner? Now, I don't want to throw them all under the rug. I'm sure there are great conversations that happen in Tim Hortons and McDonald's on a weekday morning, but some of the recent ones I've heard, like I watched a couple, and I don't know them, but I watched a couple, and she had her coffee, and she was waiting for him to get his coffee, and I assume they were in their 70s, maybe 80s, and all they did the whole time was complain about their experience at the restaurant. Oh, the music here is so loud. Management, this place never gets clean. Why is it so cold in here? Why is my coffee lukewarm? They don't make it like they used to. Did you check out the bathroom? And I'm thinking like, there are 12 other eating establishments all side by side by side by side, all down Roby Street. Why do you go eat there? Well, guess who I saw the very next week at the same place making the same complaints? Why do we do that? Why is negativity and complaining so contagious? Why, why is it so easy to get sucked into endless conversations, whining about politics, swapping conspiracy theories about how everyone is out to get everyone, moaning about inflation, complaining about the cold? Why is it so easy? I, I think one possible explanation may be this. What else will we talk about? I wasn't here last weekend. And Steve was sick. I appreciate Doug jumping in. That was good ministry to us and the church. We did a little trip to New Brunswick for a friend's birthday party, and we didn't take the kids. It was, it was nice. But let me tell you, it was kind of weird. The first part of the drive, when it was just Elsie and I, it was kind of like, what do we, what do we talk about? <laughs> There's nobody in the back seat to get after it, stop hitting your sister. We're, there's a potty stop five minutes down the road. Can you hold it? We should, you should have got a snack before we left home. You, I'll open your water bottle for you. You get a drink. Like, and then they're not there. And whoa, 
what do we talk about? Like, the table's open. We can go anywhere. I think, I think we get so used to and so accustomed to just critical complaint, negative pessimism. It just naturally, and people connect to that, right? Common enemies, common friends. Oh yeah, that guy cut you off the road? Well, yeah, me too. And we just, it's like a sense of belonging, weirdly, isn't it? It's a poor substitute for belonging, but it's a connection nonetheless. Can you believe that exam the teacher gave us? She didn't cover half of that stuff in class. Yeah, I know, right? Can you believe it? What were the last half of those questions? She never talked anything. Wait, what's your name? We never talked before. Or have you ever been sitting in the break room with coworkers and it's just awkwardly silent? Like, who's going to say anything? And then somebody says, guess what the boss did today? And then it's just, everybody jumps in on it. Like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I can't believe that. Wow, ooh. But you don't know the person's last name. You don't know anything about them. You don't know if they're married or if they have kids or if they live with their parents. You don't know anything about them, but all you can do is you just jump in on that critical thinking. I don't know, maybe you feel like you're sitting in the hot seat because that's been your conversations this week. That's what I felt like. It's so easy to jump in on that complaint and negativity and get stuck in that place, isn't it? And you know it's wrong. You know it's not healthy, but another piece of juicy gossip? Yes, please, I'm going to click on that link. I haven't paid attention to Jennifer Aniston, don't know what she does, but that link, I want to find out what she said to her. Who cares? Can I suggest to you that if your relationships, if your community, if your sense of belonging is found in your mutual frustrations and complaints and disappointments in life, it's probably not a really deep, lasting, healthy community. This multitude of invalids spent every moment together, moaning, sick, injured, frustrated, probably lonely, probably scared. But when it came down to it, it was every man, every woman, every child for themselves. It wasn't a real sense of community. Enter Jesus. Do you have that moment in your story yet? Where maybe you've been trying to earn your way, you've been trying to find that sense of satisfaction, or maybe you've just totally given up and you've settled for a, a counterfeit community that is really a poor substitute for the real thing. Has Jesus entered into your story yet? Has he changed the trajectory of your life? Jesus, John 5, 5. One man. Everybody say one man. Now here's a question for you. Jesus is about to change this man's life. Did he change anybody else's life in that pool among that multitude of invalids that day or was it just this man? We're going to read further, but spoiler alert, it sounds like it was just this one man. Do you ever feel like the weight of the problems in the world? Okay, forget the world. What about just the people in your life, in your community, your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, your family? That's enough people. What, the problems in that group right there and being unable to speak, do you ever feel stuck not knowing what to do, how to help, 
You hear about a benevolence ministry at church and you think like, man, there is so much pain, so much hurting out there. People's pipes froze this weekend and burst and they're in a miserable state. What do we even do about this? How do we have enough money? How do we have enough people? How do we, how do we meet the need? And here's Jesus walking into a place that's full of the blind, the lame, the paralyzed and going to one guy, one man. What do you think everybody else thought of that encounter. All these people who are there for that one opportunity to jump in the water and Jesus walks in and picks out one man to change his eternity. Is that fair, Jesus? What if we had that approach? What if, what if instead of trying to solve the problems of the world, what if, we, what if we focused on one person? You remember the one name campaign we did way back when? What if we focused on one person? in our evangelism efforts, in our compassion, in our benevolence? What, what if we prayed for one person specifically? How would that change the impact of our mission? Jesus, verse five, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? 38 years. What was the lifespan like in that place, do you think? How old was the average person? If this guy had been there 38 years, could he have potentially been the one who was there the longest? I mean, almost four decades? Jesus knew this man's situation. It says he knew that he'd already been there a long time. Now, maybe he smelled the smell, maybe he saw the tattered rags, maybe he came to an educated conclusion, but I would suggest Jesus knew this man's story beyond surface level. I I would say Jesus knew everything about this man. Jesus knew more about this man than this man knew about himself. Jesus knew what was about to happen, what the rest of this man's eternity was going to look like. Jesus knew this man's story. Jesus knows your story. Jesus knows your pain, knows your trauma, your scars. Jesus knows everything about you. And he reaches out to this man, gets his attention. He says, do you want to be healed? It's kind of an odd question, right? I wonder if they were holding signs. I wonder if they were holding cups, holding out their hands. I wonder if everybody knew that context in verse 4 that we talked about that this is the reason why all of this multitude of invalids were gathered in this pool. And Jesus picks out this one man and says, do you, do you want to be healed? I don't know how he said it. <laughs> That's my emphasis added there. Why else would the man have sat there for 38 years? Why would we remain stuck where we've been for years? Could it be that Jesus knew that if this man receives healing, he loses his sense of community, as sick as it is? Could could it be that the multitude of invalids was his only sense of belonging and gaining his legs meant that he might lose his group? Would they disown him? Would they kick him out? Maybe, Maybe he desperately wanted to get out of the pool of Bethesda, but maybe he feared the outside world, having been separated from it for 38 years making new friends, finding a new job, paying bills, 
facing people that he hadn't seen in decades. I wonder if he thought, maybe, maybe it's just safer if I stay right here. After all, I've been here for 38 years. Complaining has become a habit. Being critical is a crutch in my life. This group of people who whine and moan together is actually comforting to me now and I'm scared to leave it all behind. I wonder if he had any of those thoughts. Maybe this man was paralyzed in more ways than one. Maybe he was stuck in that place somewhat because of his own choosing. John chapter 5 and verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Do you ever feel alone in a crowded room? All kinds of people around me, but I have no one. Surrounded by people, but I have no one for me. I'm, I'm jammed into this community with people all around me, but when, I'm, when I really need someone, no one seems to care. We have no idea how many people in our, in our communities feel totally alone and forgotten. And I'm not so naive as to think that everybody in our church community feels seen, heard, known, and understood. Do you feel like you have somebody that'll stand with you in your time of need? I think we've all felt that way at times to different degrees, have we not? There's been a season in life where we could really use somebody to stand with us, and nobody did. Or at least it looked like nobody did. Maybe we didn't invite it, maybe we didn't ask for it, but what a terrible feeling to be left behind, to be left out, not picked for the team, alone, forgotten. That's why Nicodemus tries to earn it, right? That's why the woman at the well was seeking. But this man had given up. He'd been stuck there. Felt like he had never been given the opportunity, maybe. But that wasn't true for this man. And that's not true for you. You know feelings tend to lie, right? You can't trust your feelings. You may feel alone, but that certainly doesn't mean that you are, in fact, alone. You may claim to have no one in your corner, but I'm willing to say definitively that you do, in fact, have somebody in your corner. You have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You have one who will never leave you or forsake you, one who always has your back. In fact, in your weakness, he is your strength. In your time of danger and fear, he is the strong refuge that you can run into. In times of loneliness and confusion, he's your great high priest who can sympathize because he's experienced what you've experienced. You do have somebody in your corner. You have somebody who's willing to stand up for you. You have an advocate. You have a friend, a real friend. I have no one, this man says. And that wasn't really the question Jesus was asking, was it? Or was it? Do you want to be healed? Was Jesus referring to the man's broken body and his legs that didn't work? Or was Jesus talking about his fractured relationships? 
In particular, his broken relationship with God. Look at verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Jesus called the man out of that state. He didn't let him stay there. He didn't wait for him to answer the question, can you heal me? He didn't wait for him to request it. He didn't wait for him to... Jesus called him out of it. He could have said, guess what? Your legs work. You're welcome. But instead, Jesus calls him up and out of that place. Take your bed up with you. You've been sitting on that same mat for 38 years. Jesus says, pick it up and start walking. Don't just get up and enjoy your legs. No, pick up your mat. Like when you're leaving a campsite, you put your tent away because you're not going to spend the next night there. Pick up your mat and be on your way out of that place, out of that state. There's a huge change there. There's the miracle of the working legs, the standing, the walking, the getting up, but then also taking his mat with him. That's probably just as big of a change for him as getting his legs back. This isn't my place anymore. This isn't my home. I'm no longer stuck living in that spot where I've been complaining and moaning for years. Why? Because Jesus called me out of it. Isn't that a picture of the gospel? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. How's that for stuck? Until Jesus died for us. Isn't that the story of Esther? The feast that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to celebrate when the Jewish people couldn't stand for themselves. Esther, an advocate for the people who had positioned an opportunity that the people did not, stood up on behalf of the people, risked her life, and God granted the deliverance for the people. This man at the pool couldn't stand up for himself until Jesus walked in and did what no one else could do, raising that man from that place and sending him on in newness of life. But it was the Sabbath. And carrying your mat on the Sabbath breaks one of the 600 plus Jewish laws that were tied into the understanding of the Sabbath. Look at verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Look how quickly this guy raised eyebrows. Wait a second, what are you doing? Put that mat down, get back in your spot, quit doing that. You can't do that on the Sabbath, you're breaking the rules. Isn't it crazy that the Jews, the religious leaders, the people whose job it was to proclaim God's goodness and promises and faithfulness to the nations and to the world are the ones who are shutting down this man who just received strength in his legs because he's breaking the rules. (laughs) How sad is that? They're beating this man over the head with rules and rituals and overlooking the fact that after 38 years, this man has finally been delivered. They're about to celebrate like tomorrow 
The fact that because Esther stood up on behalf of the people, God granted deliverance to the people and freed them from their oppression. But they keep oppressing this man who's just found freedom with the rules and the religion, the rituals and the tradition. This man's finally been delivered, not because of a legendary swirling pool, not because a friend shoved him in at the right opportunity, but because Jesus did for him what nobody else could do for him. After 38 years, having given up. Look at verse 14. Let's close out uh, to verse 18. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. It's interesting that Jesus found the man again. Verse 15, the man went away and then told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. A big part of the gospel of John is to peel back the layers on who Jesus actually is and make no bones about it. Jesus is not a rule breaker. He's not just a miracle worker. Jesus is God. And that's why the Jews wanted to kill him. That man waited next to that miraculous healing water, the fountain of youth or what have it there at Bethesda for 38 years. And nobody could do what Jesus did in a moment with one invitation. Jesus is different. He's not just another prophet. He's not just another teacher. He's not just another eccentric. He is God. And when this man bumped into God, his life was changed forever. I'm going to invite uh, Andy to come and join me now, and, and we're going to take a moment and meditate on some of these thoughts from Scripture as we've been doing through this Gospel of John series. John chapter 5. Um, this doesn't have to be weird or awkward. This is your heart to God's heart. How will you respond to his word today? Are, are you the one who's stuck in that place of complaint and pessimism, negativity, suffering, loneliness, feeling as though you have no one, telling yourself that lie over and over again when Jesus is the one who stands at the door and knocks? And he's just waiting for you to invite him in, to open your heart and receive Jesus Christ. Because you don't have to be alone. Just as Jesus found this man, and he knew his story already, and he called the man out of his miserable state, Jesus offers the same to you. Praise God that Jesus came for you. And he found you. And he knows your story and he's inviting you to step into his story, to step into newness of life, to be born again, as we talked about in John chapter 3, to experience life everlasting, living water, so that you will never thirst again, John chapter 4. Would you stand with me as we consider these thoughts? We're going to have the scriptures up on screen and I just want to pray through these scriptures that we've spoken through this morning. Thank you, God. You are worth celebrating. 
thank you, God, for all the times that you've delivered your people, that you've remembered your promises. God, would you forgive me for finding comfort in complaint? God, would you forgive me for remaining stuck in my sorrow? Please, God, would you help me to see the hurting around me? Please, God, would you give me a heart of compassion? Thank you, Jesus, that you know my story. The good, the bad, the ugly. Jesus, you've experienced my pain. You understand. Thank you, Jesus, that you offer more than this life. I'm so sorry, God, for failing to see you. I'm sorry for not responding to your invitation. I'm sorry for not appreciating your blessings in my life. I'm sorry, God, for, for my pessimism. Please, Jesus, would you lift me from my pit? Jesus, would you raise me up? Jesus, would you give me the courage and strength and the ability to follow your leading? Thank you, Jesus, that you found me. Thank you for freeing me, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for giving me new life. In his name we pray, amen.